Like Eric said, my name is Gabe Garcia, and uh, I am welcomed, I am excited, um, I'm welcomed by you here, and excited to be here, thankful for the opportunity, I'm excited about what God is doing through Veritas. Eric has been an encouragement to me over the last couple years, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited and looking forward to what he's going to be doing, uh, uh, what God will be doing as he leads uh, Eric, his family, and this congregation to make a great impact for the world. Um, I now have the privilege of opening up God's Word and preaching God's Word by His grace. Today's sermon is called Redirecting Love. And it's this process that hopefully the Holy Spirit will take each and every one of us of examining our lives and seeing how we give to the world what we should only be giving to God. It's this process of saying, God, I, I see that I'm giving to the temporal things of this world, and I want you, by your power, by your spirit, to redirect my love to yourself. Now, we'll talk about what this word love means, because it's not like God doesn't want us to love people, to love our spouses, to love the church, to love truth, to love good doctrine, to love our careers. But sometimes we take these seemingly good things and we make them our ultimate things. We treasure these things over treasuring God. We, we treasure the created rather than the creator. In the first chapter of Romans, you don't have to turn there. But God kind of gives us a picture of the implications when we don't give God our full hearts. Romans 1, 24 to 25 says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is forever blessed. Amen. See, we love the world all while at the same time God in our lives becomes sidelined. Sometimes Christianity is just so simple. Now, I get that it's complex to the day we die. I get that we're never going to fully understand who God is. We're never fully going to dive into the depths of God's Word. But sometimes it's just so simple. God in Exodus 20 just says this, First commandment, you shall have no other gods before you. Does it get any simpler? Jesus in Matthew 22 says, Love the God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It seems simple, but as we dive deeper into the sinful disposition of our hearts, we realize that even the most intellectual Christian, even the most passionate Christian, still struggles to love God as God fully desires to be loved. So I want to contend today that the because of the corruption of our hearts, we give to this world what we should only be giving to God, and we receive from this world what we should only be receiving from God. And this is what Scripture calls idolatry. Timothy Keller, in his book Counterfeit God, says this. He defines an idol as anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you, what only God can give you. J.C. Ryle says this, Idolatry is worship in which the honor due to the triune God and to God only is given to some creatures or to some invention of our creatures. Will you and I allow God to redirect our love from the creature to the creator? One more time, I want to read God's word uh, John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17. We'll keep coming back to these three verses. Keep your Bibles open, and we're going to look at some other scriptures throughout the Word. The Apostle John says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And their world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does 
the will of God abides forever. Let's pray and then we'll continue. Father, we continue just to come before you and submit under your authority and submit under your word. I pray that your word would prick us where we need pricking. It would encourage us where we need encouraging. But that you would continue to reveal to us who you are. That we would come to a place to treasure you above all else, Father God. And Father, I ask that you would speak through me humbly and powerfully and faithfully for your glory. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. So the author of this book is John, the same author who wrote the Gospel of John, one of the 12 disciples. And inside the 12, there was the inner three, and John was one of those inner three. He wrote the book of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. So this is a major player in our New Testament history. John writes this book in the region of Ephesus as he's kind of getting towards the end of his life, a seasoned believer. And in the regions of Ephesus, there was early believers and churches popping up. And inside these churches, false teaching was infiltrating and subverting the gospel and confusing young believers. Early forms of Gnosticism were popping up. And I'm not too familiar with Gnosticism, but what I do know is that they challenged the humanity of Jesus Christ. They challenged the implications of sin. And they said there was only a select few who had the opportunity and the privilege of really knowing truth. So as a loving father and as a mindful shepherd, John writes this letter to restore them and rebuild them in solid doctrine so that their solid doctrine would have uh, great implications for their lives and so that they would be assured that if they are in Christ, they are in Christ. They would be assured of their salvation. Let's look at the first verse, verse 15. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let's talk about this world that John is referencing. He's referencing this fallen and temporal world that you and I live in. And the systems that are set up so that you and I become distracted we become distracted from loving God as he truly desires to be loved. Now you and I can all admit that there are a million distractions in this world that keep us from loving God as he truly desires. But I'm not just talking about Facebook and the television and doing homework. Yes, those things can distract us from God sometimes. But sometimes God, uh, Satan, uses things of this world and he places them in our heart. So that we ultimately give that thing our love. This thing of the world absorbs the love that we should be pouring out on God. So everything that redirects our love from God is of this world and controlled by the schemes of Satan. Now God is not wanting us to hate everything of this world. It's possible that our children can be a true distraction to us truly loving God as he desires. But by no means does God want us to throw our children to the side, to throw our marriages to the side, to throw our careers to the side. By no means. But he wants them to have the proper place in our lives. He wants to own the proper place, and then he wants us to keep these other things in their proper place. We actually see that God loves the world. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But we have to understand that our love for the world and God's love for the world is really different. When God loves the world, people get saved and he gets glorified. When you and I love the world, we turn our backs on God. And yes, God wants us to love people and bring people to the gospel and care for the needs of people. But that can only happen when we are loving him appropriately. So when we love and treasure our children over God, we are committing idolatry. 
When we love and treasure our girlfriends over God, we are committing idolatry. When we love and treasure and are more passionate about our theological frameworks than God, we are committing idolatry. And some of us would say, well, of course I don't love my children, my career, my girlfriend, my my theology more than God. But sometimes upon closer examination, we would see that those things are the things that own us. Those things are the things that enslave us. Those things are the things that we're actually living for. And Satan is just using the things of this world, dangling them out there with a bait and hook so that we would focus on them, we would think about them, we would have our identity found in them, we would live for them. When I examine the things that I think about, you know how much time I spend thinking about the characteristics of God? You know how much time I spend thinking about the grace of God? How much time I spend thinking about Jesus Christ on the cross absorbing God's wrath? Not as much as I spend thinking about me. Thinking about my dreams, my plans, my accomplishments, my goals. And this reveals the idols in my heart. John says, don't love the world. Don't give to the world what we should only be giving to God. What type of love are we talking about? We're talking about a love that consumes everything about who we are. Not a sexual love, not a brotherly love, but a love that consumes our hearts so that it then dictates how we live and how we think. It's a love that is worshipful, a love that is devoted, a love that is committed, a love that is affectionate towards God, a love that is obedient to God, a love that says, this is what is most important in my life. The other day I was watching a documentary um, on ESPN, because we don't have any other channel on our TV, it's just ESPN, that's it. It was this documentary of uh, Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest basketball player that ever lived. And at the height of his career, three NBA championships, he steps away from basketball to try to become a baseball player. He had this dream and this love and this passion for baseball. So he leaves the glitz and glamour of being the best NBA player ever. He leaves, leaves the height of his career. He leaves the private jets And he goes and tries to play minor league baseball. And all throughout the documentary, there was this phrase that he kept saying. He said, for the love of the game, this is what I'm doing. For the love of the game, I left all that. For the love of the game, I ride the bus. For the love of the game, I play 100 plus games. For the love of the game, I come early, I stay late. In the center of Michael Jordan's heart was this love for the game. It then dictated how he lived, what he thought about, how he spent his time, how he spent his energy, everything that he did. God does not want us to live for the love of the game, but for the love of God. And that based on our love for God, we would be just as consumed as Michael Jordan was with baseball. Now, he wasn't any good at baseball, but that's a different story. Matthew 6.21 says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God wants our heart by becoming our greatest treasure. If you have a Bible, open up to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 8. And in this passage, we will see... God, give us a glimpse of what it means to fully love him. He reminds the nation of Israel of his love, his power, his grace, and then the type of love that he expects in return from his people. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 18 to 20.
Verse 18 says this, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is in this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. We learn from the nation of Israel what they did wrong, but we see what God is after. He says, you're going after them, and instead of going after them, I want you to come after me. He says, you serve them, but instead of serving them, I want you to serve me. He says, you obey them, but instead of obeying them, I want you to obey me. God is helping flesh out what it means to fully love him, that we would worship him, serve him, that we would go after him, and that we would obey him. But the very front end of 18, it says, you shall remember the Lord your God. Our only hope for loving God as he truly deserves, as he truly desires, is that we would remember him. That we would remember what he's done in our lives. That's where the nation of Israel messed up. They forgot about God's faithfulness, about God's power, about God's grace. How often do you and I forget about God's power, God's grace, and God's faithfulness in our lives? So when we remember God and what God has done, we're not just remembering that he got us a job when we needed one. And I need one. It's not just remembering that he helped us get through our finals, that he helped us find the, the spouse of our dreams. Those are all great things, but those in themselves are not going to lead us to a life of, of worship. We have to remember what God has done us to save us from what we truly deserve. We have to remember that Jesus Christ left the heavenlies and came down and lived in earth. We have to remember that Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfect life. There was no sin found in him. We have to remember that for on our behalf, he stood in our place and went to the cross. We have to remember that's on the cross, that he didn't just receive the, the beatings and the lashings, but it was the wrath of God. This wrath that you and I deserve for our sin and our idolatry. Remember that he laid in the tomb three days later, that he rose from the grave that he calls us to repent and believe in him. That he calls us his children. To remember that we have hope to spend all eternity with him. Only when we remember the truths of the gospel will you and I have the desire to worship and love God rather than the impotent and lifeless idols of this world. As the Holy Spirit begins to possibly reveal idols that are in my heart and reveal idols to your, in your heart, you have to ask yourself, what are you living for? What enslaves you? What are you daydreaming about? What drives us and motivates us? What are the core factors that are shaping your identity? What do you think will make your life complete? What do you think is going to fully satisfy you? Now we know the answer to all these questions is God. We know that we should say God. But if we are fully honest with ourselves, God isn't the answer for you and I. It's the things of this world that we believe can answer some of these questions. Let's continue to look at verse 15. Verse 15 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The love of the Father is not in him. You and I have to understand that there are real consequences to our idolatry. There are real consequences to our sin. And there's two aspects I want to look at as we examine this phrase, the love of the Father is not in him. And one is this, that our full love, like we've talked about, is not fully given to God. Therefore, you and I, for the believers in this room, you and I, we are cheating on God. Just like a husband 
who cheats on his wife. And just like a wife who cheats on her husband, how can they say that they love each other when they're out in the streets fornicating with other people? And how can you and I say that we love God fully when we're out giving our love away to worthless things in this world? We're cheating. We're committing idolatry on God. We're committing adultery against God, excuse me. God is our faithful groom. God has always been there for us. God has always loved us. He has picked us up when we are dirty. He has cleaned us off. He has called us his bride. And instead of showering him with the love that he wants, we give our love away. Think about the betrayal that God must feel. The anger that God must feel. The frustration that God must feel. The disappointment that his bride would cheat on him. God is saying, I'm the one that has met your needs. What have these idols done for you? I'm the one that have made you clean. What have these things of the world done for you? I have washed your sins away. I have given you eternal life. I have given you hope. What have the things of this world done for you? I'm the one that has done everything for you. This theme of adultery is actually a theme that God uses to communicate our unfaithfulness to him. In the Old Testament, there's this book called Hosea. And Hosea, um, God uses the book, this relationship between Hosea, the prophet of God, and his unfaithful and adulterous wife, Gomer. He uses their relationship and juxtaposes it with our relationship. God, this perfect and holy God, and us, this unfaithful bride. Hosea 5.4 says this. Let me just read this to you. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. How can, like John says, the love of the Father be in us when we are cheating on God? And the second aspect of this verse that I want us to understand is this. That God is angered by our idolatry. God is not annoyed like he has a little pebble in his shoes. God is angered to the point of uh, being moved to wrath because of our idolatry and adultery against him. If you have a Bible, open up to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 5. I think in this passage, we're going to get a picture of how God feels. I find Ezekiel by finding Isaiah. It's a big old book in the Old Testament. And then going right. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then the book of Ezekiel, verse 20. Chapter 20, verse 5. And Ezekiel's trained as a priest, used by God as a prophet. And at this time, the nation of Israel is not only separated, divided because of their sin and their idolatry, but they're also being held in captivity because of their sin and their idolatry. And Ezekiel is trying to look back on the past of the nation of Israel to help them with their future. And as we look at this passage, I want us to see God's grace all over the nation of Israel and then how he feels when we essentially cheat on him. Verse 5 says this, And say to them, This says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, okay, so there's God's grace, he chose them, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them. In the land of Egypt, I swore to them, saying that I am the Lord your God, again God's grace. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt, God's grace, into the land I searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, God's grace, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
He says, like, I'm giving you grace upon grace upon grace. Now, this is how I want you to live as my people. Let me be your God. Throw away all the idols of your life. Verse 8, I think. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name. I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. God shows his judgment all throughout the Old Testament even though it's not the full extent of God's judgment. So the nation of Israel, they deserve God's wrath. But he withheld his wrath for his namesake, but they still experienced God's judgment. They didn't walk into the promised land. They walked into the wilderness. Adam and Eve experienced God's judgment as they were cast out of the garden and separated from God. Not the full extent of God's judgment, but still God's judgment. The nation of Israel, divided, separated. Not the full extent of God's judgment, but still God's judgment. For his name's sake, he withholds his judgment. What I want you and I to know is that our idolatry deserves the full extent of God's judgment. God would be perfectly justified the moment Adam sinned, the moment we sinned, the moment the nation of Israel sinned, to crush us from our existence and give us an eternity of what, he, what we deserve. But for his namesake, he withholds the full extent of our judgment. And for his namesake, he pours grace on us as he pours his wrath out on Jesus Christ. See, all throughout history, God withheld the full extent, but on the cross, God did not hold back. On the cross, Jesus Christ took all of God's wrath, absorbing all of God's wrath, so that you and I, so our sins would be washed away. Our idolatry deserves what Christ received. But for his namesake, he showed us grace. Flip your Bibles back to 1 John. I hope as we looked at that first word, that first verse, we see how Satan uses his schemes to get us to love this world. And we see that when we love the world, we're not loving the Father fully. And we're not experiencing the fullness of God's love towards us. That God is angered by our sin and by our idolatry. Verse 16 says this. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father but it's from the world. John uses these three different categories to help us see our idolatry, to give us a clearer picture of where our idolatry is really lying. Let's unpack each of these three categories. We'll do them pretty quickly. The first one is this, the desires of the flesh. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh is not from the Father, but is from the world. The best way to unpack what it means to be led by the desires of our flesh is to understand what it's, what it's not. In Galatians 6, we know what it means to be led by, by the Spirit. That when we place our faith in Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit. And when we walk by the Spirit, our life produces a life of fruit. A life that is honoring and glorifying to God. A life uh, uh, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. We, we know the list. But being led by our flesh is this disposition that we have sometimes 
this disposition that distances ourselves from God and from God's people. It says that I can do this on my own. I don't need to be under the authority of God. I don't need to be under the authority of the church or connected to the church. That no matter what life throws at me, I am strong enough, powerful enough, determined enough to just make it happen. To make my life as successful as it can be. And even as Christians, for the Christians in this room, how often do we do this? How often do we try not to lean on God too much? Or lean on God's people too much because we want to prove to everybody that we've got it all figured out. This is what it means to be led, the desires of our flesh. It's this, this idol of independence and this idol of self-pride. The second one is this, the desires of the eyes. This is everything that entices our eyes and it's this lack of self-control that we have. So if something looks good to us, we immediately go after it. We can think of Eve in the garden, how she was drawn to the forbidden tree, enticed by her eyes, and then acted upon her desires, even though she knew there was clear consequences. We can obviously think of sexual sin, how we are drawn by our eyes, just as David was drawn to Bathsheba. This idol says, there is nothing I should not have. If it looks good, I want it. If it tastes good, I want it. If it's going to look good on me, I want to buy it. No matter what it is, we go after what looks appealing to us. So if someone looks attractive, we lust. If we see food, we take it. If we see a pair of shoes that we don't need, we add them to our unnecessary collection of foot apparel. It is being drawn by our eyes and then the inability to being connected to the Spirit, having self-control to say, you know what, this isn't honoring and glorifying to God. And the last one is this, the pride in possessions. This is the struggle that we all have of finding our identity in certain cultural achievements of this world. Certain symbols that make somebody a somebody in Roseville today. It's where we create a persona, a profile that we want to we broadcast to the world so that people would approve of us and so that people would even envy us. This again may be the career that we're going after, the cars that we want, the churches that we go to, the educational diplomas that we have on our wall, the clothes that we wear, the money in our bank account. It's the identity that we want to present to the world so that everybody will think that we're a somebody. And instead of being driven by God's approval, we are driven by the approval of man, driven by the approval of this world. John says the desires of the flesh, the desires in the eyes, the pride and possessions, all of these things, they take away from God what God fully desires. It takes away our all-consuming love that God wants from you and I. So as we think about these three different areas that you and I are driven by, as we see the idols that are popping up in our lives, it's all an indicator that God isn't enough for you and I. That having a relationship with the creator of the universe isn't enough. That having a relationship with the God of the gospel isn't enough. And because it's not enough, I have to look to things of this world to fully satisfy the deepest desires of my heart. In my last ministry, I was constantly preaching and examining the sin uh, in my life and in the lives of, of our, our, our young adult students. But our, our sin that the world can see, it's only the visible manifestation of the idols in our heart. Right? 
So the world can see that we're lusting, but there's something deeper down, darker inside that no one else can see. So it's not that I just love my children too much. It's that I want to make them so successful to deal with my past failures. Right? It's not that I just tell little white lies. It's that I tell little white lies so that people will have a a view of me. It's not that I'm just jealous of you. It's because I'm jealous of you because I want what you have. These are the deep idols of our, of our lives. So think about a garden. You think about the, the weeds that are in a garden. The weeds represent the sin that's in our lives. And if we're going to pull out the weeds, we don't just trim the top of the weeds. No one does that. If you just pull out the top of the weeds, what you and I can do when it comes to our spiritual walk with God to make our garden look pretty, to make our spiritual lives look pretty for the church and the world to see, the roots are still there. Our sin is just going to manifest itself in a different way or in the same way a couple weeks later. So if you and I are going to get serious about dealing with our sin and even dealing with the idols of our hearts, we have to be aggressive in rooting out the deep idols of our hearts. We need to be people who are looking to kill and pull out these idols. And the only weed killer that is strong enough to kill the visible manifestation of our sin and the deep idols of our hearts is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the only thing that has the power to seep deep down in the garden of our lives and uproot the idols that we all are holding so tightly onto. Nothing else will work. Not your self-will, not your determination, not how much money you have, not the pride you have. Nothing else will work except the good news, the glorious truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we need to saturate ourselves. We need to spray ourselves. We need to fertilize ourselves with the glorious truth of the gospel. Day in and day out. Because as we uproot, we need to reroot ourselves in something. And it's the gospel that we reroot ourselves in. This truth that teaches us that we are separated from God. This glorious truth that teaches us that God's grace acted so that you and I could be reconciled to God by faith through Jesus Christ. His perfect life, his undeserved death, his resurrection. This is the weed killer to the idol in our lives. I pray that you and I will be people who saturate ourselves in this truth. And when we saturate ourselves in this truth, we will be satisfied with God. A relationship with God will actually be satisfying to us. We won't need the relationship. We won't need the job. We won't absolutely need the internship. God will actually be enough. It's a noble concept. John Piper has this book called The God is the Gospel. And the biggest, the big idea of the book is that the gospel brings you and I a million blessings, countless blessings. But the greatest and the the most important blessing is that it brings you and I into relationship with God. More than forgiveness of sins, more than the eternity, uh, you know, having, being in heaven, we actually get to be connected with God. And when we saturate ourselves in the gospel, that relationship with God is enough. When God is enough, we don't have to look to the world. And when we're not looking to the world, we can love God as he fully desires to be loved. Verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John quickly puts into perspective that the things of this world, they're they're just passing away. We can invest our time, our energy, our devotion into whatever this world may offer, but in the long run, 
they won't last. When I was a little kid, I played baseball for a couple years. I was horrible at baseball, so it was the first sport that I quit. <laughs> and maybe the reason I, I quit baseball was because, you know, more than baseball, I loved the snack shop, you know, at the baseball game. And once a week, you know, my mom and dad would give me the $1 bill to, to do whatever I wanted. So if I wanted to buy small pieces of candy, good. If I wanted to buy nachos, nachos were $1.50. I had to save up two weeks' worth of dollars, okay? And then I can get nachos and some candy, and that was just a crazy week. <laughs> well, what I would usually spend my, my money on was bubble gum, was um, big league chew bubble gum, this pack of gum that they actually made to kind of look like tobacco, which is just a whole other story. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun when you weren't good at baseball. And I would put some big league chew in my mouth, and it tasted great for about 30 seconds. And then it tasted like rubber. And you put a little bit more in your mouth, and it tastes great for about 30 seconds, and then back to rubber. Until you've placed the whole thing in your mouth, you've got a baseball-sized wad of gum in your mouth, tasting like rubber. It tasted great for a second, but it quickly went away. The things of this world may taste great for a second, but they will quickly fade away. So the decision that you and I have to do, we have to decide what are we going to invest ourselves fully into. Things that are going to pass away or things that are going to go on for all of eternity. The choice is ours. John says the idols of this world will pass away. Will we let go maybe just a little bit so we can give a little bit more to God. And how do we turn our backs on this world? The scripture says that we need to abide in Christ. When we do the will of God, we abide in Christ. There's this great promise in this scripture. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to hear the promise that through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, you would be able to abide with Christ, with God, for all of eternity. That is amazing news. I plead and pray that you would make that decision to turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ so that you can abide with Him now, here, today, at Veritas, tomorrow, and for all of eternity. And that promise is true for the believers in the room. And if we're going to do the will of God so that we can abide in Christ, the trick to doing the will of God is also abiding in Christ. The only way that you and I are going to be able to live in this fallen world as faithful disciples of Jesus is to stay connected to Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, you and I, we have no hope. If we disconnect ourselves from Jesus Christ, we will run after things of this world. This idea of abiding was really important to John. John used it, um, where's that here in my notes? John used it 40 times in the Gospel of John, once in every 22 verses. And he uses it 24 times in the book of 1 John, four out of every four and five verses. This idea of staying connected to the gospel, staying connected to the words of Jesus, staying connected to the ministry of Jesus, staying connected to the mission of Jesus, remaining and staying connected in him. When I started thinking about staying connected to Jesus, I started thinking about my nine-month-old son. And maybe for some of the young parents, you can maybe understand this, but there is no way that we're going to leave him out of our sight. Every word, every noise, we hang on to it like it's the word of God. He says, Baba, and we start celebrating. Baba is not a word. He goes to the bathroom, we throw him a party. He eats something, we take a picture, and we put it on Facebook. We're like, we're like sitting under, we're, and we're so connected to him. What if we had that same energy towards Jesus Christ? That we stayed connected to every word of Christ. 
We, we, we never disconnected ourselves from, from what Christ accomplished for us. What if we were just as passionate about remaining in Christ? It's the steady, stable, being firmly rooted in Him at all times. If we want to do the will of God, if we want to leave these idols, it's only by God's power, it's only by God's grace, and we need to stay connected to Jesus. John 15.5, you guys know this verse. Again, just shows the importance of it is to the disciple. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you holding tightly onto the words of Christ? Are you holding tightly onto the good news of the gospel? Or is it something that's just in the background of your life? I want to end today by giving you guys a couple um, application points. Maybe you can write down on a piece of paper or in your Bible or something. And it all comes under this heading of redirecting our love, right? Stepping away from the impotent idols of this world, not allowing them to absorb our love, but giving the God of our salvation everything that we have, an all-consuming love. And the first po point is this. We need to repent and rejoice. Repent and rejoice. I love Eric's prayer earlier, the, the spirit that's in the room that just says, yes, we are sinners and we want to repent of it. We must humble ourselves and say, yes, we all have sin in our lives. And yes, even more so, we all have idols in our heart. But the good news, there was one who didn't have any sin in his life and didn't have any idols in his heart. And because of his perfection, he was willing and able to go to the cross for our sacrifice. So yes, we are moved by our sin. We are grieved by our sin. But we rejoice daily in what Christ accomplished for us. We rejoice that we can be brought near because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The second point is this. Plead with God to root us in the gospel. Plead with God. Beg God. Pray, borrow, steal, do whatever you have to do to sit under God and say, God, help me to be rooted, not in the things of this world, but in the things of your truth. Help to root me in the gospel, to remain and abide in the gospel. This is what I'm convinced of, that we don't know and we don't treasure the gospel enough. And our lives prove this to be true. If we knew the gospel more, if we loved the gospel more, our lives would look different. So we plead with God, God, root us by your grace in the gospel. This is knowing the gospel more, like intellectually. This is being moved affectionately by the gospel. Daily, God, root us in the gospel so that we would treasure you above everything else. And the last one is this, allow God to set your agenda in this world. See, God doesn't want us to turn our backs on this world. He wants us to love the church and love our spouses and be great people in the community. He wants us to love truth. He wants us to care for the poor. He wants us to, to do, to be his ambassadors out there in this world. But we can only do that when we properly love him first. But once we give him our heart, allow us to go to the word and allow the word to set our agenda in this world so that we can be light, and so that we can bring other people to this good news. So remember, the idols of our heart, they produce sin. But when we treasure God, when God has our heart, it's going to produce good works for him. So we allow God to set our agenda in this world after we give him the proper place in our heart. If you guys remember, when I read that Ezekiel passage, Ezekiel chapter 20, there was this phrase, but I acted for the sake of my name. And this phrase actually appears three times in that whole chapter. And we saw the nation of Israel was just poured on with grace and grace and grace like God chose them. But they rebelled. They sinned. And God was angered and moved to wrath. But for his namesake, he withheld that. For his namesake, he sent Jesus Christ. For his namesake, 
Christ went to the cross. For his namesake, you and I have the opportunity to be in a relationship with him. And just like God lives for his namesake, I pray that based on the gospel, based on the grace of God, based on Jesus Christ, you and I, we will also live for the namesake of God. We would allow him to transform us, to redirect our love from the things of this world to himself. The God of creation, the God of grace, and the God of the gospel. And that we would continue to live for the sake of his name. Let's pray. Father, I am fully aware of my inadequacies, but I pray that your spirit work through the teaching and the reading of your word. And I pray, Father, that this spirit of repentance would continue to lead this church into deeper love and devotion of you, a God who deserves our love fully. We repent that we love this world in ways that we shouldn't love it. But give us wisdom and guidance and direction and how to be faithful Christians in this world. Surround us with people that are older than us, that are younger than us, that can speak into our lives so that we can continue to live for the sake of your name. And I pray that as we continue through this service, we would worship you our living God who speaks to us through your word, our living God who has done everything possible to redeem us from our condemnation, from our judgment by your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. back.